Well, whether you are online or in the room, we're so glad that you guys are here for yet another uh, week of talking through Quest 52, and I'm excited to share with you today. I've got to confess that uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's the idea of how did Jesus lead? At least that's how Mark Moore framed it in his book. How did Jesus lead? And I'm responsible for getting the different guest speakers lined up to, to speak for every week, and we've had just a great uh, display of great speakers from around the region, and it's been great. But as we got to this one, it was open for a while, and no one had taken it yet. And I'm kind of a leadership geek. I'm not necessarily good at it, but I'm a geek about it. And I was kind of watching going, I wonder if this one's going to be taken. And as we got a little closer, I was like, oh, shucks, I'll, I'll talk about that one. I can do that. No problem. I love it. But here's my problem. I want to confess this now because those of you that know me well already know this about me. I'd like to give the rest of you guys a, a sneak peek here. When it comes to leadership and most things in life, I am an incompetent perfectionist. Yeah, think about that for a second. It's a rough world to live in because I'm a perfectionist. I see everything that's wrong. I see everything that's crooked in a building, in a house, and things that are disjointed relationally. I see those very early. And I have incompetence about how to fix them. And the gap continues to grow because I've taken, uh, I've done... I've pursued degrees in this area, and I've hung out with brilliant people, and I've got a massive bookshelf on books I've read and reread on leadership. And the more I read, the more I learn, the more that gap grows between what I know is ideal and who I am, okay? Maybe some of you can feel my pain. I hope so. So I know that I'm an incompetent perfectionist, and what I would have loved to do with this topic, how did Jesus lead, I would have loved to just say, great, here's seven great transferable truths that we could pass on to you guys. Go be like Jesus. In fact, that's how I started my prep. And I was like, okay, let's make it five. No, let's make it 10. Uh, let's have them all start with P. And, you know, and I, I got all kinds of stuff, but I think we're missing the mark if we go down that road. How did Jesus lead? I don't want to heap a burden on the 10% of you that are shepherds right now. I want to heap encouragement on the 100% of us that are sheep. Rather than how did Jesus lead, I want to make a quick tweak and just say, how does Jesus lead, because he's not done. How does Jesus lead? And I, I want to train our ears to be able to hear better how he's speaking to us, train our eyes to see better how he is going before us and drawing us near to himself, because 100% of us in this room are sheep, and we've got things to talk about here. And there's a, a wide variety of understanding about what leadership is. Henry Blackaby in his great book about 20 years ago called Spiritual Leadership about 20 years ago, he said there was over 850 definitions actively of leadership. And you know in the last 20 years that's expanded a lot. And if we try to get our arms around every little detail about leadership, we're going to be exhausted this morning. Instead, what I want to do is say, let's, let's look at the greatest leader of all time who leads for all time and see if we can distill this down into just one metaphor. And that metaphor should make sense to us. If you've read Quest 52, Mark Moore goes there as well. Um, it, it's a very common metaphor, especially in the first century when Jesus was physically embodied on the scene. But it's this idea of being a shepherd. In fact, 400 times, roughly 400 times in the scriptures, New Testament, Old Testament, the idea of sheep comes up or flock comes up because this, it's just such an easy metaphor, especially in that era when everyone knew a shepherd, everyone could walk just a short distance and see uh, sheep gathered together. 
And so it was an easy metaphor to work with, and it's also very, very vivid. So 400 times that comes up, about 100 times the idea of a shepherd comes up. And a lot of those are pointing directly to the Lord or used as an illustration for the Lord. So it's a, a vivid metaphor for us. And so I got into one of my geeky books. It's massive. It's probably a 1,200-pager, Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, page 782. Have you ever read to page 782 of anything? At 782, there's this great description of sheep, and we are all included. So I want to lower the bar for all of us today. Here's what it says about us. Sheep are not only dependent creatures. They are also singularly unintelligent, <laughs> prone to wandering, and unable to find their way to a sheepfold even when it's within sight. Thank you, authors of biblical imagery. And God says, this is a metaphor that's going to work for you guys. Okay, I know the crowd I'm working with. And if that's not good enough, I've got, to, I've got to resurrect the video that I'm sure all of us have seen individually. I want us to see it collectively for a second because this is the sheep and the shepherd uh, exemplified in video. That's me and my favorite sin. How about you? Thank you, shepherd. That's been terribly uncomfortable in there. Oh, so good to be free. Praise Jesus. Right? This is who we are. This is our world. And so rather than talking about seven or eight ways to get better at leadership today, I want to say let's look at the guy that pulls us out every time. We'll have some fun thinking about who we are, but we want to focus on him. We want to focus on the shepherd to the sheep. And uh, I want to do this by looking at three big blocks of Scripture. And the reason I want to go with three big blocks of Scripture is because I want his word to win, not mine. I hope that makes sense. And I want us to be exposed to a, a text that maybe is a little bit unfamiliar to us. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. Again, 100% of us in this room are sheep, and so we got something to learn. And maybe later we'll throw a little bit at the 10% of us in here that might be shepherds. But here's what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look at the text. When Samuel became old... And by the way, this is about 1,000 B.C., so this, I'm going to say over and over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, this is how God works. This is how he shepherds. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. Now if you're paying attention, they just said three really profound things. These are the elders. They got together, and they decided they're going to have an intervention. And they come to Samuel, and they say, we got three things. First of all, you're old. He's like, mm-hmm. Okay, that didn't offend you. Okay, your sons, your sons, they, well, they're not fit to lead. They don't follow in your ways. And he's like, yeah, what's next? And we want a king like the other nations. That is what displeased Samuel. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say and do. For they have not rejected you but they've rejected me from being king over them. Isn't that interesting? 
I mean, seriously, I, I went through that fast, but the idea that they're saying, hey, Samuel, I know you've had this great run, but isn't it about time for you to be done? That didn't seem to get his attention. And, and I know you made this crazy, bold decision to put your sons in charge, but have you seen them? They're not doing so well. Look how they're characterized. That didn't bother them. But when the elders came together and said, we think that we need to have a king just like everybody else. Oh. And I wish I would have known what that prayer life was like with Samuel going before the Lord and going, God, did you hear what they said? They want a king. And God very tenderly, as a great shepherd, just says, no. Remember, they're not, a, they're not rejecting you. They're, they're, rejecting, they're rejecting me. There's a timeless truth here, and that is this. God wants to shepherd his people, but his people want to be like the rest of the world. I say that's timeless because this was 1,000 B.C., roughly. It's true today, isn't it? And I want to talk to parents for a second. I'll bet I get a lot of heads nodding on this. When your preteen daughter is saying, but mom, but dad, everybody is on social media. I mean, I'm so left out right now. I don't watch what they watch, and, and we know. We've got a different king, honey. I'm sorry. That's okay. I want to stand with you. When your high school son is saying, but dad, but mom, all of my friends are out till 2 a.m., unsupervised. I know. But we've got a different king. We've got a different standard. We're going to do things different in this household. Amen? And the list goes on and on, and it's not just parenting. So now you're in the hot seat because I know, I know what your coworkers are watching. I know what the hot series is on TV. But we have a different king and a different standard. And maybe you have to allow FOMO to exist for a while because you're not going to be aware of what the world indulges in. And the list goes on and on and on because what happens so often is we've got a shepherd who absolutely loves us, absolutely adores us and says, I'm sufficient to lead you. And we say, yeah, but we want to do it like they do it. And we make the mistake as sheep that keep jumping out of that ditch. We make the mistake of saying, we want a little bit of Jesus over the weekend, but please don't get in the way of my habits and my hangups and my stuff because I don't want to miss out on what the world has. So here's what, here's what the Lord says. He makes his great declaration in this moment when he says, Samuel, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Listen to what he says here. This is powerful. I got to imagine this, ha- this packed a punch when he said it. He says this, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots, to his horsemen. He will appoint or take himself commanders to plow the ground and reap the harvest. He will take your daughters and be perfumers and cooks bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take. Do you see this happening? He will take. He will take. He will take. Well, he's going to take the grain. He's going to take the vineyards. He's going to take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men, your donkeys, put them to his work. He will take, seventh time in a row, he will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be their slaves. And here might be the most painful line. In that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you 
in that day. I want to emphasize in that day because I think we've got a shepherd. I know we've got a king who lives in such a way and leads in such a way that he says, sometimes I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. And indirectly, it's going to pull you back to me because you're going to realize that what you wanted isn't what's best for you. In that day, when you chase that thing, you'll want to hear from me. And one day, I'll be able to lead you again. So, so the solution here that the king has is he says, okay, I'm going to give you Saul. And Saul's a mess, okay? There's some good things, there's some bad things, but Saul's a mess. I'll give you a king. By God's sovereignty, he says, I'm going to give you that king, and he's going to someday bring about David. And David is a king, a man after my own heart. And David is going to eventually start this lineage that brings this to Jesus. I'll have my way, but right now I'll let you have yours. Because the way I lead. I love how God does this. And I want us to just have a little bit of a pause here before we go to the next verse, because... We see that as formal kings and a formal lineage. And so that was 1,000 years B.C. That doesn't bother us at all today. But we've got informal kings now, don't we? We've got those we say, God, I want that. I want what they have. I want to do it their way. We have informal kings. We've got false religions. We've got sin mess that we prefer. And all those things pull us away from letting him simply lead us the way he always wanted to. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and it's brilliant. I hope you hear this loud and clear. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, describes that persistent sin, that time where you're saying, God, I know what your word is, I know what your ways are, but I'm going to be over here for this moment again and again and again. It's my, it's my favorite sin. Let me have that one. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says sin is like this. It's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. Think about your stubborn sin. It's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And he's going, if you'd let me lead you, and rather than letting that sin lead you, you'd be better off. But here's who we are. Here's who we are. You know, kings take. The king of kings is the only one that gives. That's really important for us today. Kings take. The king of kings gives. Let's look at Ezekiel for a second. Ezekiel is the next segment of scripture here. There's three we're going to go through, and this is Ezekiel 34. And if you're turning there, I'm going to stall for a minute because it's going to take you a while to find Ezekiel. At least it does for me. But go to Ezekiel 34. And uh, this is about 590 B.C. or so. And uh, while you're looking there, I want to set this up. By, it's about shepherding, of course. And uh, in October, we're going to have about 120 people from Northside go to the Holy Land. And it's going to be incredible. Had a kickoff meeting yesterday. We're going to go check out the sights and the sounds, and we're going to get to see those things. I've stood in Bethlehem in a sheep pen to go, oh, that's how they gathered that's where the shepherd would go to protect them. And you can see these things, and you, if you're lucky, you might see a shepherd leading his sheep, and you'll have that word picture, and you'll go, this is amazing. Well, just set up Ezekiel 34. Dr. Lynn Anderson, who's written a lot about this beautiful metaphor of sheep and shepherds, he's describing a time when he's on a tour in Israel with his group. And the tour guide was there, and he was painting this beautiful picture, and there's the rolling hills, and there's the scenery, and you're in the Holy Land. 
and he sees somebody out there with the sheep. He's like, now, bus, listen up. And he's got their attention. He says, here's how it works. Here's what the, the, the rod and the staff was all about. And here's how they made them lie down in green pastures. And here's the still waters. And if you look carefully, you're going to see, as he's describing this, all of their attention went past him out the window to the, to the man that was in the field with the sheep. And he could tell that he was losing them. And they started to chuckle and they started to get these looks like they're watching a car wreck. And he, he finally looked over his shoulder to see what they saw. What they saw was a man throwing stones and he had a club and he was out there just working one of the sheep. And he's like, what? Jumped out of the bus. He says, what are you doing? You're ruining my illustration. You're supposed to be a shepherd. You're supposed to love these sheep. I've been talking all great things about you and you're over here beating the sheep. He's nearly dead. He says, sir... I think you misunderstand. I'm not a shepherd. I'm a butcher. <laughs> I think what we're going to find in Ezekiel 34 is there are times when we've got someone who's been entrusted to be a shepherd who over time starts to look an awful lot more like a butcher. In fact, we're going to see that here is very, very vivid. The timeless truth here is that God wants to empower people to join him in collaborative work, but then they, we, fail. And then he has to rebuild this thing. He has to take it back. But he wants us to join him. So here's what the scripture says in Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds be feeding the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Quite an indictment, right? Shepherds, why are you acting like butchers? But here's what really, really matters. We know our human tendency. We know where we can drift when we have power. But again, I want you to look at the shepherd, and I want you to look at his style and his approach. Listen to what he says. Therefore, verses 7 through 10, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd... And because the shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I'll require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to the feeding of these sheep. No longer shall the shepherd feed themselves. I will rescue the sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them." Here's what I love, and I promise we've all been in that situation. It's a, it's a boss, it's a government, it's a situation, and you're going, God, are you even paying attention? I mean, I'm being slaughtered over here. For a moment, he might allow poor leadership to prevail. For a moment, he might wait. But God does step in, and he will lead his way, his time. In this case, he chooses to rescue the sheep. Look at verses 11 through 16. It goes from the you language and the finger pointing to this great ownership from the great shepherd. He says this, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when it's among the sheep and have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. 
I'll rescue them from all the places. I will bring them from the peoples and gather them to the countries. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them in good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I'll bring the back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And I love, I love the heart of our God. Remember, this is not a list for us to get better. This is a list for us to go, I'm so glad he's on his throne. Because when things get tough and when the shepherd turns into a butcher, we've got a great shepherd that's saying, I got this. I am paying attention, and I'm with you. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? He's got this. We're going to be led well, either directly or indirectly. And what I love is that throughout all of history, from Genesis to Revelation, God is in the business of having a partnership with people to protect and shepherd the people. He has the capacity to do all of it alone. I mean, the scripture tells us that even when a sparrow falls to the ground, he notices, he's aware, he sustains everything, but he chooses, isn't this great church? He chooses to say, I can, but I want to invite you to join me. It's a lot like our giving. When we give here, it's not because God's going, I don't know where we're going to find the money. He's going, here, guys, you've got good jobs, you've been taken care of, here we go, nice salary, nice inheritance, here's what's happening. Would you join me and give some of that back? I've got this, but I really want your participation, your partnership. That's how he leads. That's how he shepherds. And for about 10% of us in this room, that's an opportunity for us. We could be in that situation. We could be partnering. See, the worldly shepherds exploit, but the good shepherd empowers. That's what he does. That's his design for us. The worldly shepherds exploit, good shepherd, the godly shepherd, he empowers, and he's empowering us as a body. That's a good thing. And I want to go a little bit deeper with this one because this is so incredible. I hope you have that tangible Bible you can look at for this later, where you open up Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, what you'd see is Jesus healing a paralytic, and then he's calling Matthew as a disciple, and then he's teaching about fasting. He's restoring a girl to life. Yeah, restoring a girl to life. You, don't, can't, you can't just go past that. That's amazing. He restores a girl to life. He's healing a woman. He's healing two blind men. He heals a demoniac. It is Jesus-centric. He is all over here doing all this incredible work. And then at the end of the chapter, there's this really interesting pause. It's almost like he climbs up to get a different perspective. At the end of the chapter, here's what it says in verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. I hope you're tracking with me because this is amazing. Matthew 9, he is frenetic. He's doing all this work, and he should. He's the, he's the Savior. He's doing his thing. He pauses, and he says, whoa, I'm doing all this work, but the crowds are harassed and helpless. Man, they need shepherding. His very next act is, is Matthew 10, and he says, 12, go out. There's work to be done, and we're going to start multiplying this thing. We're going to start getting the work done through you, with me. That's the heart of our shepherd, and for some of us, that's where we are. We've got to go there. For all of us, we've got to be encouraged that he is well aware when we're harassed and helpless, and we are, aren't we? As a culture, aren't we harassed and helpless? 
I mean, you see it. If you pause on any street corner in any of these smaller towns here, even in the smaller towns, you're going to see people that are harassed and helpless. If you're not sure about that, wait until they close a major bridge. (laughs) We'll know. We're harassed and helpless. Or watch a family scurry out the door to get Johnny to school, and he's about half-dressed and not sure what just happened, and his lunch pail fell open, and it's... You know how crazy it can be just getting in the door of a school or on the doors opening on the way out of a school and they get released into the community from the high school and you go, oh, harassed and helpless, here we go. Black Friday is only about three months from now. Talk about harassed and helpless. Go to any big box store. And it doesn't just take that. It could be an election. It could be a lot of things. But we are harassed and helpless but not beyond the watchful eye of our Savior who is saying, disciples, let's go take care of that. And by the way, you don't have to look any farther than this room for harassed and helpless. I hate to point it out, but I will. Because in this room, you know we're in good company, right? When we go to this lobby after the service, there will be people harassed and helpless. In fact, one of the hardest things for me to see as a pastor is when somebody comes to the church midweek and you can see it from 100 feet away, their lives are broken in ways they didn't expect. And they come limping in to the building and they've got to meet a pastor. I don't even care whose name it is, but I'm a mess. My world just fell apart. Help. And we're honored and we're privileged and we're poised to respond in that moment. But it's so sad to me because most of the time when someone comes limping in with that life-altering change. They're limping in because they don't have the body of believers around them. They're part of the crowd, but they're not part of the community. They don't have the shepherds that they trust yet. And again, we're privileged to be there and respond in that moment. We want that moment. But what we want more is someone to come limping in to say, I spent all night with my life group, the people that know me and love me. And they're praying for me, but now we need to have some more professional help, would you help us? You get what I'm saying? About 50% of us here are not harassed and helpless because we are in a life group. We're committed to that kind of community so that when the butcher comes, so that when the chaos comes, when the stubborn sin pattern continues, we've got a place to go and be surrounded and be supported. But about 50% of us in here don't. Please, even this week, even today after service, go out and sign up. Sign up for a life group. And for some of you, it's time to lead one. You're one of the 12 that's being sent, but you haven't stepped up yet. Join the shepherd in what he's doing to shepherd the harassed and helpless population around here. We're trying. We're just not training in such a way that we are responsive when the life falls apart. This is not to beat you up. This is to remind you of what our shepherd is trying to do and how we get to to follow his lead. So the recap so far is that we've got a God whose shepherding style is to give, not to take. To empower, not to exploit. And then the third thing I want to look at just briefly here is John 10. And this is a great and brilliant trait of our shepherd. John 10 verse 11, uh, verses 1 through 11 is, is incredible, but there's a timeless truth here. He is the lion and the lamb as we sang about earlier. He is certainly that. But before and after being that sacrificial lamb, he was and is the good shepherd He leads, 
And look what he says about this contrast. He tries to make it really clear. He says, the thief, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they may have life and life more abundant. Isn't that great? We know the thieves that want to steal, kill, and destroy, and they are, they are many. But he has come to give us life and life more abundantly. And most of us in this room know that life. We've tapped into that and we've seen that it's not so much a sacrifice to follow this shepherd because he provides everything we could ever possibly need. But we want to just marvel at that for a second. See, for a lot of shepherds, they're more interested in sacrificing you than sacrificing for you. But we've got a good shepherd who will sacrifice for you. And in John chapter 10, if it's not clear enough, he goes on and says this about the, how he will give you life more abundant. Then he says he will lay his life down for his sheep, verse 11. And in case it wasn't clear enough, he'll say it three more times, verse 15, 17, and 18, that he's come to lay his life down for us. Now, so often people look at, look at the snapshot of history and they'll acknowledge that Jesus existed and they'll say he was a good man. He just got overpowered by a, a ruthless crowd and they threw him on a cross. No, he laid down his life. He said, I see what's coming. I'll, I'll take that cup. Lord, I'd love for it to pass me, but I'll take that cup. He prayed that way in the garden. And he set his face toward Jerusalem, Scripture says, because he knew what he had to do for you and for me. It's incredible what he did, what he chose. He didn't begrudgingly go to that cross. He embraced that cross. It's incredible. And the scripture says that he really, he triumphed over the enemy on that cross. While stripped naked and bare, beaten half to death, from heaven's perspective, this is triumph. This isn't, whoops, what have I gotten myself into? He laid down his life for us. That's what the shepherd has done. And his last, his last breath wasn't an apology it was it is finished. It was victorious because he knew that he had completed what he came to do. He came to lay down his life for you and me. Isn't that remarkable? That blood that was shed, that body that was broken, that communion that we celebrated, that we're reminded of daily, that is the shepherd. What other shepherd does that? What other shepherd would have that kind of perspective? We are in good hands. And as we wrap this up, I just want to paint this picture one way. When we continue in John chapter 10, we see this really, really well. Verses 27 through 30 reads this way. My sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they, may this be said of us, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see that picture? I and the Father are one. There's this beautiful picture of how the shepherd is going to hold us close. He's going to draw near. He's paid the price. He's done the work. From Genesis to Revelation, the King of Kings would give rather than take, empower rather than exploit, and sacrifice himself rather than sacrifice us. He is worth following. Amen. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, you are our great shepherd, and we shall not want. And you make us lie down in green pastures. 
And you lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. Thank you. Thank you. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to follow well, please. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because you're with us. Thank you, Jesus. And your rod and your staff, they will comfort us. Thank you. In ways we can barely grasp, you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And you anoint our heads with oil and our cups overflow. And surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in your house forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Please remain seated if you need a shepherd to stop and visit you. Please go to the Life Group booth if you need to step in over there. Know that you're loved. We love you guys. Have a great day.